0: You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Caroline McGregor. Mental health continues to be in the spotlight, with federal funds set aside for the Bureau of Behavioural Health to help finance multiple West Virginia programmes. We'll also hear statistics from a recent mass distribution of the life-saving naloxone drug. And more on West Virginia University and how faculty and students continue to grapple with widespread funding cuts. And the week also produced some good news for customers of Mountaineer Gas, who will see lower bills, and there's new efforts to expand green technology in the state. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. More than $33 million in federal funding was awarded to the Bureau for Behavioral Health to enhance mental health and substance use prevention services for West Virginians. Emily Rice has the story.
1: Federal funding from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration will support prevention, early intervention, treatment, and recovery services across the state. In a release, the DHHR outlined seven grant programs that will support various initiatives. From screening mothers for mental health and substance use disorders and a children's mental health initiative, to treating first responders' substance use disorders and projects for assistance in transitioning from homelessness, 16 counties in West Virginia will benefit from a grant promoting the integration of primary and behavioral health care. In addition, the state's only 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline Center will receive funds annually for three years to enhance the capacity capacity of the facility. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston.
0: Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Faculty members at West Virginia University have started to learn whether or not their contracts will be renewed. Chris Schultz has more.
2: In response to a $45 million budgetary shortfall, WVU determined last month that it needed to cut 143 faculty positions. However, at Monday's WVU Faculty Senate meeting, Provost Marianne Reed announced a significant number of faculty, 74, have voluntarily retired or resigned from the university, leaving 69 faculty yet to be dismissed. Much of the meeting was taken up by questions from faculty senators to administrators regarding the process and appeals for a reduction in force. President Gordon Gee was asked how the university is planning to avoid future cuts.
3: I cannot predict the future, although I can predict that this transformation process will allow us to be more forward-leaning.
2: Faculty members did not seem satisfied with Gee's answers and posed the same question at least two more times. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown.
0: A $10 million Appalachian Regional Initiative for Stronger Economies, or ARISE, grant, has been awarded across five Appalachian states, including West Virginia, to help expand green technology and clean energy. Brianna Heaney has the story. The West Virginia Manufacturing Extension Partnership will be one out of the 10 firms that will be receiving funding and the sole firm for West Virginia. The Extension Partnership's mission is to strengthen and grow the state's manufacturing to increase the competitiveness of the state. Executive Director Brandon McBride says that this funding will also help job growth in the state.
3: This funding is gonna provide us an opportunity to support training opportunities, uh, different forms of technical assistance, supply chain mapping, and provide guidance on the type of factory upgrades that are needed to support electric vehicles and green building technology.
0: This funding is part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which became law in 2021. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Mountaineer Gas customers may get a break on their monthly bills if the Public Service Commission approves a settlement. Curtis Tate brings us that story.
4: Mountaineer Gas asked the PSC in March to approve a roughly 6% increase in base customer rates, effective January 1, 2024. Under a proposed settlement filed last Friday, the rates would increase by 4 percent. However, the Canal County Commission said on Tuesday that rates would decrease if the PSC approves the plan. That's because the increase would be offset by a reduction in the purchase gas adjustment and infrastructure replacement and expansion programs. According to the commission, the current average monthly cost to residential gas users is $98.30. Under the proposed settlement, the average would decrease to $88.69, a savings of $9.61. The PSC last month approved an increase for Appalachian Power customers. An increase for West Virginia American water customers is pending. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston.
0: This week, I reported on the Ohio County Board of Education, who met Monday, to discuss guidelines for a new medical cannabis policy for students. Here's the story. Last year, the West Virginia Department of Education adopted a policy to establish guidelines for the possession and use of medical cannabis in schools. During a meeting Monday night, the Ohio Board of Education discussed the policy, which limits applications for cannabis use to students who provide a doctor's certificate. They also need to produce a parent's signature. Parents or guardians of the student are also required to produce a medical cannabis card through the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources. Only caregivers or guardians could administer medical cannabis to a student in or on school property or at a school-related event. The rules forbid the marijuana or the card being left on school property. The guidelines say students could only use gummy, drops or pill forms of marijuana, not plant relief forms. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. The number of naloxone doses distributed on Save a Life Day more than doubled this year. Emily Rice has the story.
1: Naloxone is a medication that works to reverse opioid overdoses. One common brand is Narcan, an easy-to-use nasal spray. In 2020, the first Save a Life Day was organized by the DHHR's Office of Drug Control Policy in partnership with SOAR West Virginia, a Charleston-based community group. Three years since the effort began in just two counties, more than 180 counties across 13 states participated and distributed more than 45,000 naloxone doses throughout Appalachia. According to Iris Sadiqman, the Appalachian Save a Life Day coordinator with SOAR, about 20,000 doses were distributed last year.
3: One of the most moving things about Save a Life Day to me is watching people take this idea that we had and this work that we've done and bring it to their community all the way up and down the country.
1: For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston.
0: Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. There's more to glean from a candidate's campaign financial reports than the amount of money raised. Who and where the contributions come from can spark voter alerts. Randy Yohe has more.
5: The third quarter campaign finance reports in the West Virginia governor's race show the four leading candidates raised nearly $1.2 million combined with Attorney General Patrick Morrissey accounting for nearly half that amount. Marshall University Associate Professor of Political Science Mary Beth Beller looked closely at in-state versus out-of-state contributions. She notes that of the two front runners, 57% of Delegate Moore Capito's donations come from West Virginia donors. 83% of Morrissey's donors come from out-of-state. Beller says voters should pay attention to that.
6: What do those out-of-state interests have, and what are they trying to get from the gubernatorial position in West Virginia.
5: The quarterly reports list owners that have given contributions under $250. Each donation is counted separately, creating multiple donations from single sources. Beller notes that among the four leading candidates, businessman Chris Miller had 78 donations under $250, just four multiple donations. Secretary of State Mac Warner, 281 individuals, 17 multiples. Capito had 322 individual donations, 25 multiple donors. Morrissey reported 21,990 individual donations, most from donors that contributed small amounts, multiple times.
6: He can advertise he has a lot of support, but at the end of the day, I'm not sure that he has that much support.
5: Beller says that unlike his competitors, where most contributors list their address and occupation, the bulk of Morrissey's contributors are unidentified.
6: I would urge the Secretary of State's office to really investigate those disclosures. Um, I think the public deserves to know Where these contributions are coming from.
5: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston.
0: You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. Governor Jim Justice filed his required Senate candidate financial disclosure from last month. It reveals more than what he's required to disclose on his state ethics form, but it, too, doesn't include everything. Curtis Tate spoke with Robert McGuire, Research Director for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, about the limitations of candidate disclosures.
4: Why are the required financial disclosures for federal candidates so vague?
2: So the issue is that you have people with incredibly complicated finances um, filing in a system that wasn't built for such wealth. And so you have... For example, very vague totals that are reported where, you know, some of these members have assets that are well above $50 million in value and the highest bracket for, you know, in the disclosure is just over $50 million. So it doesn't, you know, no matter how far above that it goes, you don't really get any precision in terms of what the actual value is. Um, There's also the issue of there not being a uniform manner of filing. You know, some members still file on paper, and some of those paper filings are almost comically illegible. Um, You know, some of them have handwritten information on them. Um, And then you add to that that there is just not enough enforcement in terms of even when they file and what they file, where... Um, you know, there are members who haven't filed, still haven't filed their uh, paperwork for last year. Um, there and, and there's no real pen, penalty for that kind of thing. It happens all the time. We routinely see members um, go back and add major investments or major sales or major acquisitions um, long after the fact. Um, so there's really just uh, all around a kind of lack of enforcement. Now, granted, having the information that we have is better than nothing.
4: Justices' filings at the federal level omit many of his liabilities. At the state level, he's exempt from disclosing any of them. What problems does that create? You know, the the, the
2: purpose of these laws is supposed to be that the public can view and and confirm that the, the their elected officials, the people who are elected to serve the public, to serve the interests of their state or to serve the national interests are actually serving those interests and not their own personal financial interests. And so when you exempt these things that can be subject to uh, the sway of creditors or the sway of wealthy interests, then you have to ask yourself, why have the rules to begin with um, if you're going to exempt such important information? What we see so often in a lot of these filings is something that smells bad, but you can't really tell exactly if, you know, what, what you're actually sensing as, as off is actually off. And that's that's kind of the problem with a lot of these instances is, you know, a lot of it could be above board, it could be totally legit, But it's also not particularly difficult in a lot of these instances to see how they could be used for undue
4: influence. Justice has legal troubles and he's not alone. But why run for office under such a cloud?
2: One thing that we have been seeing over the years is this seeming idea that a run for federal office is in a way a protection against some of the legal troubles that um, you are facing. And so there is this growing issue that once you get into office, it becomes harder to prosecute you. Basically, there is a protection against um, legal accountability that comes with federal office that I think is perceived by a growing number of people that um, if there is going to be any sort of federal charges, if there is going to be any sort of financial fine, the stakes when it comes to bringing those kinds of things against a federal official um, become higher because it can be politicized. And so, you know, I cannot say that that is what is happening in this instance, but it is certainly something that um, appears to be a part of the thought process among certain people.
0: That was Robert Maguire of Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility in Washington, speaking with Curtis Tate about ethics disclosures for federal candidates. The Electronic Registration Information Centre, or ERIC, is a bipartisan multi-state partnership aimed at helping states maintain accurate voter rolls. This past March, Secretary of State Mac Warner withdrew West Virginia from ERIC, citing partisan influences, Last month, Warner announced West Virginia was making a new data-sharing state was making new data-sharing state partnerships to prevent election fraud. Randy Yohe spoke with Secretary Warner and Eric Pass chair and current board member Megan Wolf, about the best ways to keep the states and the nation's voter rolls clean.
5: Warner says more than half of any voter duplications happen in neighboring states. So he has West Virginia joining in data-sharing agreements with Ohio and Virginia along with Florida. He says the goal is a 50-state membership.
3: Uh, but we'll get to the uh, broader uh, states, you know, larger number of states over time. Uh, but you can see, you know, we started, we've got Virginia and Ohio. We'll be working with Pennsylvania, Kentucky, seeing Maryland uh, as, as time permits. But uh, it, it, again, this is the
5: very beginning. We're in the first year of this. West Virginia border states Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Maryland are three of the 24 states that currently belong to ERIC. Wisconsin Election Commissioner, former Eric Chair and current board member Megan Wolf says the consortium offers highly secure, bipartisan state voter rolls data sharing that produces election safeguarding results.
6: There have been more than a million voter records that have either been updated, so updated with a new address, or deactivated where they're no longer on Wisconsin rolls because of information that we received from Eric. Eric is also the only tool that allows us to see if somebody has committed some type of voter fraud and voted in two different states.
5: Warner says he withdrew West Virginia from Eric first because the system was stagnating.
3: It was stuck. It was at a 30, 31 states, and there were a number of states, including a big one like California, that I think were prohibited by their state law from entering into uh, the uh, ERIC-type program. So uh, there's nothing that prevents any of the states from getting into memorandums of
5: agreement with individual states. Wolf says ERIC is not stagnant, but a dynamic data-sharing system.
6: It's not a one-time thing. You can't just get one ERIC report. It's something where you need to be constantly getting that data and incorporating it into your uh, process, into your statewide voter registration database.
5: With a handful of Republican states, including West Virginia, pulling out of the consortium in 2023, Eric has become a national political football. Warner says the other reason he quit Eric was suspected partisanship from ex-officio non-voting advisory Eric board members.
3: And when they didn't remove themselves or the board didn't address that issue, then it showed the partisanship nature of the entire thing and just led to, if not the reality, at least the perception of uh, partisanship.
5: Wolf says Warner's assertion of ERIC partisanship is part of a misinformation and rumor mill.
6: It's not uh, truthful information about what ERIC is. And so I really think that some of the controversy is the result of information that's just not accurate. Some concerns from other states, uh, the ERIC membership uh, all agreed to amend our membership Uh, Process and we no longer have any of those advisory seats. The voting states are made up of both Republicans and Democrats from across the country.
5: Wolf says creating a new state-to-state voter data sharing system will not be a simple task.
6: A lot of it is outlined in our our state laws in terms of how that has to happen, and we wouldn't be able to do something like that outside of our, our statutory allowance.
5: Warner says a 50-state solution is needed to address the real problems that will increase confidence in West Virginia's elections. Several of the states that recently left Eric have state leaders that aspire to higher office, including gubernatorial candidate Mac Warner, who says that is not the reason.
3: The state issue but uh, not a political uh,
5: aspiration issue. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston.
0: Science fiction and technology writer Corey Doctorow presented this year's McCrate Lecture in the Humanities on Thursday night in the Geary Auditorium at the University of Charleston. An award-winning author, he's written novels and young adult fiction, as well as essays and non-fiction books about technology. Bill Lynch spoke with Doctorow in advance of his visit to Charleston.
4: I guess the first question is, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself strictly as as a fiction writer, or are you a lot more than that.
7: You know, I think that um, on the one hand, I, I, when I write fiction, it's because without wanting to be too grand, I, I'm trying to be an artist, right? I'm trying to make art. That's what creative writing is, is it's an art form. And so the, the job of art is to be good art, right? It's to uh, make you feel things that you wouldn't feel otherwise, to kind of uh, go to new places and so on. Now, part of the method for doing that, is to also infuse it with the work that I do as an activist, in part because the uh, use of real world important issues in fiction makes the fiction seem more important, It, it makes the fiction I think actually more important, you know it's 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 easy to forget just how weird fiction is right that that we somehow are, are tricked into feeling empathy for imaginary people doing things that never happened and caring about what happened there it's literally could not be less consequential right like there are no consequences to the things imaginary people do that's it's just comes with the territory there and so one of the things that i think makes the art more urgent and more uh artistically satisfying is the infusion of the art with the real world stuff and at the same time, so much of the, the stuff that I work on is so abstract, right? And so difficult to wrap your head around that one of the things that fiction can do is make it more immediate. And so as an activist, you know, I'm always looking for ways to make things that are important, but are a long way off or are too complicated to readily grasp into things that feel very immediate and pressing. And, and certainly that's something that happens a lot in my fiction.
4: What's one thing you like? like just the average person to understand about technology? I guess that's a good question.
7: I guess it's that the collapse of the internet that we have today from the wild and woolly internet where disintermediation seemed uh, everywhere, people were able to have lots of technological self-determination, and the descent into the internet we have today, which, which Tom Eastman calls five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four, was not driven by any kind of technological inevitability, right? It it wasn't like it, it had to be this way. Specific choices, policy choices, made by specific named individuals whose like home addresses are not hard to find. And, you know, who who live conveniently close to a supply of pitchforks and torches, that those specific policy choices were made and they gave us the internet we have now. And it needn't be this way forever, that we can have a better internet, that it's a matter not of the great forces of history, but of human agency.
4: Places like Appalachia, particularly West Virginia, have seen a decline in population as people, mostly young people, have left could technology uh technological advances the a better internet could that mitigate that well you know the
7: Appalachians, uh like many other places that aren't silicon valley is a place that both needs technology and isn't getting the technology it needs the uh lived experience of bros in a in a boardroom in silicon valley is so far off from the experience of people in Appalachia, or indeed in many other places in the world, including in Silicon Valley, if you're not a rich tech bro, that um, we really, uh, it's very important that we have the right and capability to modify the technology that we're expected to use. You know, I'm I'm not saying uh, learn to code is a thing that we should tell miners that have been put out of work by the energy transition or anything. But I am saying that if you don't know, how to adapt the technology that is acting on you. And if you don't have the right to adapt the technology that is acting on you, that it will only act on you and that will you'll never be able to act on it, that you'll never be able to adapt it to your needs and to make it do what you what you need in order to live a prosperous and better life. And so it's very important that technological self-determination be a part of the story when we talk about how we're going to use technology everywhere but especially in places that are so far both in terms of uh, their uh, lived experience and and the geographical distance from Silicon Valley as Appalachia.
0: That was Corey Doctorow speaking with Bill Lynch. Lots of people in the U.S. live in a bubble. The friends and family in their echo chamber think and believe just like they do. About four in ten registered voters in America say they don't have a close friend who supports the opposing political party or candidate – On the latest Us and Them podcast, host Trey Kay learns how two childhood friends keep their relationship going across the divide. Brian Griffin and Lynn Angel talk regularly and say they learn a lot from their exchanges. Here's an excerpt of the Us and Them episode, To Friend or Unfriend, That's the Life Question.
8: I was born and raised by an East Coast liberal, and we were very, very much considered the lefties, the the progressives. And yet, my father was one of the crowd. There was room for debate, for discussion, for healthy discussions amongst people who were friends, who would go to cocktail parties together, and they would argue loud and, and vociferously all the way into the deep morning hours. And the next day they would get up and they would go to work and they'd be the best of friends because that's what they were.
9: They were friends. About 3,500 people live in Gallapolis, Ohio. People here vote Republican. Three years ago, 77% of the voters in Gallia County, that's where Gallapolis is, cast a ballot for Donald Trump. Back in 2016, 75% of the people here voted for Trump, helping lift him to the White House. On election night, 2016, Brian lost a lot of sleep.
8: Okay. I'm one of those people that stays awake all night on election night. There is a crack in the blue wall.
9: Today we're going to win the great state of Michigan and we
8: are going to win back the White House. What's going on in Michigan? Is Hillary Clinton going to be able to pull it out? It sounds like it's really tight. So I knew when the Michigan firewall fell that it was over and that our president was Donald Trump. And there was never a more transformational moment in my entire life because not only was it that my candidate was not going to win, but the most unexpected thing that every wonk was talking about didn't
9: happen. Trump won. It unnerved Brian. That was completely disorienting. However, Brian didn't yell or scream. He didn't unfriend his conservative friends in Gallup Instead, he listened. I've had friends that i had all my life. We grew up together.
8: The views that they have are the views they formed while we were all growing up and forming our views.
9: I know where they're coming from. They're from a place where things haven't been going well for a long time. We were left out.
8: We did get a rust belt wrapped around us. During our lifetime, we watched small, affluent towns all around us, including ours, go from vibrant communities that had their own businesses and their own restaurants and their own social fabric and their own, you know, faith community, go to
10: bombed out wastelands. Okay, I'm Lynn Angel, born and raised in Gaia County, Ohio. Southeastern Ohio, Appalachia. I'm a girl that's gonna call a road a road, not a street.
9: Lynn is one of Brian's closest friends. She still lives in Gallup Police. It's about 150 miles from Brian's home in Cincinnati. These days, they mostly connect on FaceTime or over the phone. I, I met up with Lynn in downtown Gallup
10: Police. We are very, very conservative. Every office holder in the county courthouse is a Republican. We are Mayberry, except we're not quite as idyllic. We, We have our drug problems, we have our theft problems. Back when tobacco existed, we had a much more vibrant farming community. Now that that's gone, there's a lot of us finding our way into something else to make our farms profitable. We're not we're not the people that have the five hundred acre soybean fields up north. We're the people that have the thirty acre field and the smaller tractors. We're just it's it's just Appalachia.
0: You can hear more about Brian and Lynn's friendship on the new Us and Them podcast episode "To Friend or Unfriend." That's the question. You can download the entire show from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, or Spotify. You can also listen online at wvpublic.org. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Caroline McGregor.